From Dartmouth Hitchcock Health, this is The Cure, a podcast focused on the diagnosis, management, and prevention of COVID-19 in a practical and easily digestible format. I'm one of your hosts, Amog Karnik. In today's episode, we'll be discussing blood clots and the promise and peril of using blood thinners when treating patients with COVID-19. We've learned a great deal about COVID in the past year. One early finding of complications was the formation of blood clots in small capillaries causing damage in the lungs, kidneys, heart, brain, and other organs. There were alarming reports of young people presenting with strokes and heart attacks. And without a better understanding of who was at risk for these complications, providers were left wondering if they should anticoagulate all patients with COVID. This also raised the question of how much anticoagulation would be needed and for how long. The obvious downside was that any anticoagulation would inevitably lead to more bleeding. Our guest today is Dr. Deborah Ornstein. She's the medical director of the Comprehensive Hemophilia and Thrombosis Center here at Dartmouth-Hitchcock Medical Center. She's a professor of medicine pathology and laboratory medicine at the Geisel School of Medicine at Dartmouth. I'm also happy to be joined by my co-hosts, Marshall Ward and Rima Mercado. Dr. Ornstein, thank you for, for joining us today. I think just to get things started, would you just mind explaining what we're talking about when thinking about the concept of coagulopathy and, and specifically what is a COVID-associated coagulopathy? Okay, sure, sure. So the coagulation system is really a marvel of engineering. And if you think about it, you, you need to have blood in the fluid state in order for it to flow and travel to all the organs and deliver oxygen and infection-fighting cells. But if you have an injury to a blood vessel, for example, you need to have a way to stop the flow and form a blood clot. And in, in normal, healthy individuals, these processes are perfectly balanced. There's the coagulation and anticoagulation. Now, what happens when a coagulopathy occurs is that this anticoagulation and coagulation balance is thrown uh, way out of whack. And the types of situations in which that occurs include things like infection or advanced cancer. Those are things that have a tendency to trigger the coagulation system. And either clotting or bleeding can predominate in that situation. And it's pretty common when we see patients with bacterial sepsis, for example, in the ICU to develop a coagulopathy like this. Now, a COVID coagulopathy is one in which the coagulation system is, is all out of balance. And in COVID coagulopathy, the clottings tends to predominate over the bleeding. So these patients will develop abnormal blood clots in places that where you, you would not ordinarily expect or want to find blood clots. Thank you. So I, I have a question as a follow-up. How do you think COVID-19 coagulopathy likely is or potentially different from other infectious and illness-related coagulopathies? It's an interesting point. So there, there are a number of differences between the COVID coagulopathy and just a simple coagulopathy we see in, in ICU patients with sepsis. And the difference is, is, 
first and foremost, one of scale. In uh, severe COVID infections, the immune system is stimulated, the inflammatory response goes haywire, and you, you've heard of cytokine storm. These inflammatory cytokines trigger the coagulation system. They activate the macrophages and monocytes that trigger coagulation. They activate platelets. They increase coagulation factors like, like factor eight, von Willebrand factor. But it, in addition, the COVID coagulopathy also involves the blood vessels and the coronavirus is directly toxic to vascular endothelial cells and causes what we call an endotheliopathy. And the virus binds to a receptor on the endothelial cells, enters the endothelial cells and uh, damages them. And it's one of the reasons that we think that the SARS-CoV-2 is associated with the types of clots that we don't usually see in a coagulopathy. So for example, the strokes and heart attacks, the arterial thrombi in young people, that's not typically a part of, of the picture when we see a septic coagulopathy. The other thing that we see with SARS-CoV-2 infection is clotting in the small vessels throughout the body, but in in particular, the lung and, and alveoli. So when we think of clots in the lung, we usually think of them as originating from a deep vein thrombosis somewhere distally in the body, but, but and then embolizing to the lung. But in SARS-CoV-2, what we actually see in addition is uh, in situ thrombi, quite a difference in scale and mechanism for uh, COVID coagulopathy. Oftentimes, when we admit patients to the hospital, we use some kind of uh, DVT prophylaxis. Is there any ideal strategy to optimize and minimize the chance that they develop coagulopathy in patients diagnosed with COVID-19? Prophylaxis is an important issue, and this is a very rapidly changing aspect of care for COVID patients. In the beginning, what we observed early on was that patients with COVID develop blood clots despite adequate, what we would consider adequate anticoagulant prophylaxis. And so the thought was, let's increase the dose of anticoagulation. And the early observational studies suggested that maybe there was a dose response effect with anticoagulation, but it, it turns out that's probably not true. Now, when we typically admit a patient to the hospital who is sick, we run through a checklist of risk factors for venous thromboembolism. And if the patient meets enough of these risk factors, we initiate prophylaxis. The difference with uh, COVID is that everybody gets uh, prophylaxis because everybody should be considered uh, high risk uh, for uh, venous as well as arterial thromb thrombosis. Thank you. That's helpful for hospitalists like me too. So you're saying we just need to maintain the same prophylaxis as we would use in, in normally admitted patients. Yeah, so the 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 Prophylaxis is not perfect. Even in ICU patients who are sick, non-COVID patients, there's about a 5% breakthrough rate for thrombosis in patients who are on prophylaxis. In COVID patients, it's higher than that. It's you know, two to three times that. 
but, and people have been interested in looking at higher doses of heparin and, and, and or anticoagulants and what the, it's very tempting to try to say, oh, Jesus is a very sick person, highly prothrombotic state, let's use intermediate or therapeutic doses of heparin for anticoagulation. That's actually been addressed in randomized trials, which just recently, within the last few weeks, were, were paused because it turns out that the higher doses of heparin anticoagulation don't seem to improve outcomes in very severely ill patients, but there is a signal toward a higher risk of bleeding. So for now, the current recommendations for COVID patients, whether they're acutely ill, non-ICU patients, or in the ICU is for prophylactic dosing of anticoagulation for uh, thrombosis prevention. Rima, you're asking all the questions I wanna to know too, so thank you. <laughs> As a follow-up question, given that COVID-19 carries an increased risk for uh, coagulopathy, are there any particular labs that should be ordered if a patient is admitted? And if so, should these labs be monitored throughout the patient's hospitalization? One of the features of, of SARS-CoV-2 infection is an increase in D-dimers. And, and D-dimers are breakdown products of fibrin. So what happens is that the minute your body forms a little clot, it's the fibrinolytic enzymes go to work and break it down. And as a result, the D-dimers, which are a breakdown product, are increased in the blood. And, and the problem is that's not a very specific marker for ongoing clotting. And in, in COVID-19 infections, particularly severe infections, the D-dimer will go sky high, independent of any clotting. And it turns out that the D-dimer is helpful prognostically very early on in the, in the Chinese observations. The, the high D-dimers, particularly on presentation and if the D-dimer levels were climbing during the hospitalization, portended a very poor prognosis. If your D-dimer stayed relatively low, the chances of survival are pretty good. So for prognosis, following a D-dimer is helpful. It is not helpful for assessing people for venous thromboembolism in this disease. The, the other lab test that is, is somewhat helpful is the fibrinogen level. And these patients will often develop a disseminated intravascular coagulation, consumption of, of coagulation factors, and fibrinogen levels can, can become depleted. If that's the case, then, then supplementation with cryoprecipitate is, it can be helpful to prevent bleeding. Those are the major labs that have ongoing importance uh, in these hospitalized patients. So taking the next step then is, so once we've taken care of a patient in the hospital and they're ready to go home, is there any role for continuing prophylactic anticoagulation or thinking about the use of using oral anticoagulants in yeah. these patients? And, and how, do you, how do you make that decision? Yeah, that's an important question because just because you're out of the hospital doesn't uh, make you out of the woods. And our inclination early on was to extrapolate from hospitalized sick patients with, with diseases other than 
COVID and consider prophylactic dose anticoagulation, either with an injectable low molecular weight heparin or a direct oral anticoagulant. But it turns out what we've learned during the course of, of uh, observing this disease is that once patients are discharged from the hospital, the risk of thrombosis is actually pretty low. And it's somewhere in the neighborhood of around 0.5%. And you have to balance that with the risk of anticoagulation. And most of us feel like a risk of 0.5% is not significant enough to put everybody on prophylactic anticoagulation. Now, Selected patients, patients who have developed clots in the hospital, clearly will need a course of anticoagulation that extends beyond the hospital. But in unselected patients, what we're recommending is counseling. Let people know what a DVT feels like, pain in the leg, pain, swelling, shortness of breath for pulmonary embolism, that kind of thing. And so rather than put everybody on prophylactic anticoagulation, the field has moved a little bit in a short period of time to not do that. So if we had a patient that was admitted to the hospital and had a prior indication to be on therapeutic anticoagulation, for example, prior clots or atrial fibrillation, is there anything to suggest that we should change their anticoagulation strategy while hospitalized? And if so, what scenarios would you consider this? Well, uh, yeah, a lot of our patients who have an indication for anticoagulation are anticoagulated with the direct oral agents. And though they have very few drug interactions, they do tend to interact with some of the medications that we use to treat severe COVID-19. And what we generally recommend is getting people off their oral medications. There are a number of issues with, with taking oral medication when you're critically ill also. And substituting either low molecular weight heparin in what we would consider therapeutic doses or unfractionated IV heparin. The low molecular weight heparin can be hard to use if there are uh, kidney injuries and decrease, is, issues with decreased clearance. But unfractionated heparin using our usual target activity levels is sufficient. And then on recovery, most of these patients can be converted back to their oral regimens. Awesome. Thanks. That's definitely very useful, especially considering the patient population that we see oftentimes has comorbid conditions that lead them to be on anticoagulation for a variety of reasons. Now, taking another sort of stab at this, a lot of patients who test positive for COVID-19 don't need to be hospitalized, right? So we obviously see these patients in the hospital, either as hospitalists or whatever, but in the clinic, we may see patients who test positive, have mild symptoms, and don't need to be in the hospital. Are they still at a risk uh, for developing a coagulopathy in these sort of mild cases? And what is our sort of strategy in terms of dealing with that scenario? Yeah, the mild cases, the the coagulopathy is associated most strongly with the severe cases. The mild cases are certainly not immune from developing coagulation activation, and in particular, patients who are at baseline high risk for for thrombosis, just having a viral illness can sometimes trip them, trip off the the prothrombotic state. That being said. At the current time, we're not recommending prophylactic anticoagulation in all comers with mild symptoms. 
And though this is not data-driven, this is more, more faith-based than evidence-based, patients, you know, and my patients in my practice ask me about this too, patients who have had uh, thrombosis in the past who currently aren't anticoagulated, who may be at risk, those may be patients for a short course who are candidates for a short course of anticoagulation. But in general, we're not recommending wholesale uh, prophylactic anticoagulant for the, the outpatients. Now, Dr. Ornstein, I'd like to switch gears just a little bit and talk about uh, patients who have underlying bleeding disorders rather than coagulopathy. And it's a specific question related to whether patients who have underlying bleeding disorders like hemophilias are safe to receive uh, COVID vaccination. Do you have any specific recommendations about that? We train our, our patients, particularly patients with severe hemophilia, to never get an intramuscular injection without letting us know first because of the risk for bleeding and particularly hematoma formation. But we are advising all of our patients to get the vaccine if they have the opportunity, basically based on a risk-benefit calculation where the, the benefit uh, far outweighs the, the bleeding risk. And this includes patients who are chronically anticoagulated too, I would say, because there is a risk of, of bleeding at the injection site and it can be serious. What we're advising patients to do is when they get the injection is hold pressure on the site for a good five minutes or more. And in, in our patients with bleeding disorders, many of them have uh, coagulation factor concentrates that they use at home for bleeding. If they do develop a hematoma, we're advising them to administer themselves a self-infusion. I think that will be relatively uncommon. And other strategies for managing bleeding, rest, ice, elevation, compression, that, that sort of thing. But I don't think that any of our bleeding disorders patients, any of our patients on anticoagulant anticoagulants should decline a vaccination because of that. Awesome. Thank you, Dr. Ornstein, for joining us today. This was really fantastic and really helpful. I think this can be relevant for everyone um, who's listening in. So thanks very much for joining us today. Sure. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. So, what are our take-home points from today? Number one, we know that COVID can lead to increased risk for blood clots. This is partly due to systemic inflammation in the setting of infection, but it's also due to direct damage to endothelial cells throughout the body. This leads to significant burden of clots that is distinctly different from sepsis or other critical illness-associated coagulopathy. Number two, Patients hospitalized with COVID should be considered high risk for developing arterial or venous clots. These patients should be treated with prophylactic anticoagulation with either heparin or low molecular weight heparin products. Higher doses don't seem to help. The data we have thus far seems to indicate that prophylactic doses are sufficient to prevent blood clots. Number three, there's no current evidence to support the use of blood thinners in patients with mild COVID-19 who don't require hospitalization. Patients being discharged from the hospital also don't need ongoing anticoagulation unless they have another reason for being on a blood thinner. Number four, 
any patient who has an underlying bleeding disorder or is on chronic anticoagulation should be safe to receive the COVID-19 vaccines. While there is a risk of bleeding at the injection site, this can be monitored and should not prevent patients from going ahead and getting their shots. This episode was directed by Marshall Ward and produced by me, Amog Karnick. We'd like to extend a very special thanks to Dr. Deborah Ornstein for joining us today. All materials discussed here are for the purposes of education only and should not be taken as medical advice. Thanks very much for listening, and we'll see you next time.